Welcome to the Physics Teaching Podcast, the podcast for teachers of physics, made by physics teachers. Physics teachers like me, Robin Griffiths, a sort of part-time-ish teacher of physics these days, because I do other things around the school uh, now, but um, yeah, I teach years 9 through to 13. And physics teachers like me, Thomas WP, part-time, A-level only teacher of physics. And congratulations, Robin. I believe you are moving into a different school to be half a physics teacher. That's right, yeah. So I'm doing the same thing, head of sixth form, but uh, with about half a physics timetable, but at a slightly different school. So I'm going back to co-ed. So I've been teaching girls only for uh, a few years, which has been great. And we now have a lot more girls doing A-level physics, but uh, now moving on to a co-ed school. So I shall be back teaching boys again, which would be fun. Well, congratulations. And we're sitting here in Studio 13, your kitchen, surrounded by presents. And it's not Christmas Eve, it's somebody's birthday. That's right, it is the cat's birthday. Isn't that lovely? So lots well, of... happy birthday to the cat. 55 yeah. tomorrow, I believe. Yeah. In cat years, yeah. He's doing rather well, isn't it? He's only got three legs, but there we go. Anyway, what have we got in store today? We can't do, what have you done this week? Because we've been celebrating Christmas and New Year, and we'll have to do that anecdote about how we drank too much in the year, blah, blah, blah. You say that, but we went back to work on, on Tuesday, on the 2nd. Oh. Barely um, had I let go of my urine-smelling traffic cone um, and got my hangover cure. <laughs> But I was back into school, so it was all a bit of a shock. So yes, I've been I've been teaching this week and started teaching radioactivity, which is always a fun topic to teach. I always find radioactivity is a lovely topic because it really is interesting. There's lots of really interesting things that you can get discussions going. Students really love to see it. But of course, all of the demos you have to do yourself, certainly with the lower school students. So this is year ten I'm teaching it with. Um, so how to, how to make those demos live is always a little bit difficult, I find. So that would be an interesting thing one day to do. Are ways to teach? We've probably done it in the past. Are ways to teach radioactivity. Mm, maybe nice to revisit yes that would be good to revisit they're, they're always surprised that they are radioactive that's always a shock to them isn't it yes yes banana equivalent dose and all that yeah <laughs> i'm never quite convinced but i love the bd but i'm never quite convinced about it anyway uh do look up we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to banana equivalent dose and there's also a brilliant poster on doses by I think it's XKCD. I will dig that out. That's amazing. It's, it starts off the with... The chart. Yes, this yes. chart. It starts off with, this is the dose you get from eating a banana, and it ends with the dose you get from, I don't know, standing next to a black hole or something. We, we should explain, actually, to, to those teaching who aren't familiar with radioactivity, bananas basically because they have a naturally occurring radioisotope in a slightly higher concentration than is naturally the case, namely potassium-40, as far as I remember, um, they have a slightly elevated level of radioactivity. They're slightly more radioactive than average. And so, therefore, you can actually work out equivalent doses of things like chest X-rays, flights to New York, you know, sleeping next to someone, which is quite an interesting yes. one, because people also have a slightly elevated level of radiation. Um, all these things in terms of your banana equivalent dose. It's always remarkable how low the dose is if you work at a nuclear power station, which is testament to the physicists and engineers that built them. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. We're going off at a slight tangent there. Today we're going to talk about Albert Einstein. Well, an Albert Einstein fellow who contacted us from all the way across the pond. So thank you to Michael P. Stewart, who contacted us, who is an Einstein fellow. An Albert Einstein distinguished educator fellow which is fantastic isn't it it was so interesting hearing that so you spoke to him obviously but but i i got to um hear the interview in its entirety which was brilliant and and what a wonderful idea yeah, i mean it's probably best if you explain kind of yeah the i think background to this. I, he explains it well in the interview but i'll, I'll summarize and we'll go into it straight away so in the united states there's a 
competitive application to be a fellow and you're plucked out of education and you're planted basically into the heart of government as, a, as an influencer. I would say that's what he is. In Washington, D.C.? In Washington, D.C., they pay all your expenses. You have a flat. It's ex- an extraordinary achievement. So it's wonderful, wonderful to talk to Michael. He had a lot of very interesting stuff to say about what he's been doing, but also some great stuff about teaching physics, which we'll talk about at the end. So here is me chatting with Michael the last year. <laughs> Stewart. I'm a Virginia science teacher and currently Albert Einstein Fellow at the National Science Foundation. Well, welcome to the podcast. Now, you contacted us because you were interested to share what you've been doing. So why don't you summarize how you got this incredible title, an Albert Einstein Fellow, and what you're doing with it? Sure. So the Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellowship is a fellowship for experienced teachers science teachers. And um, you have to be a teacher for five years, and then you can apply. And then you work in DC with uh, either either a federal agency, or in Congress. Okay, so everyone who wins it, it's a competitive process. Congratulations. Everyone who wins it, even if they live in Portland, Oregon, are flown to DC for a year. Yes, that's exactly right. So it can be a little challenging, right? It's definitely a sacrifice. For those who live farther from D.C., you will, if you're from more than 50 miles away, you will need to get a um, an apartment in the district. But there's a whole cohort of us, and you're very much connected with your other fellows. We regularly meet uh, at least once a month, but more often than that. And, and you're in the city. It's, you know, you can bring your family. It's really exciting. And it's a wonderful experience. The, the fellowship pays higher on the average teacher salary. So they try to offset the cost of it. And you are then surrounded by leaders in the federal government, leaders in uh, federal agencies, leaders in education. And it's a whole year of PD. And it really gives you time to actually reflect on your learning and your teaching methods. And you, you can have a really powerful impact that you can then take back with you. So you are attached to the National Science Board, which is a big think tank as far as I, my, my parlance. And you're representing teachers. You're the subject matter expert, I'd say. So what, what are you doing day to day as part of this fellowship? Absolutely. Yes, it is a big think tank. And it's, it's um, the National Science Board is essentially the citizen oversight. Board members are the citizens oversight, overseeing the National Science Foundation. So I support them. I support those national board members. And, you know, when I say the national board members, I'm talking about five university presidents. All of them are at least professors. Two of them are in industry currently. One was on 60 Minutes just this past week. And they're really big, powerful people. And they want to benefit science and how science and engineering, how it occurs in the U.S. and and grow um, a community of people that can feed into the science and engineering pipeline to strengthen science and engineering industry. And so I support them. Most people in the government really genuinely want to make the world better. Like they genuinely want to improve challenges and address challenges. Um, and 
everyone on the national science board, I can say, absolutely, they want to reach those missing populations that have been underserved historically. They want to up the number of women in STEM. They want to address these systemic issues. And they're working really hard. And the board members are, they are volunteers that are appointed by the president. You get the prestige, but you're volunteering your time. And they spend a lot of time talking through how, how to make a system that works really well. And if I can lead in and, and kind of promote one of the things you've talked about with your previous guests, you had a guest that um, talked about the PVELC method, the when you do physics, draw a picture, list your variables, draw, uh, write your equation, make a link, and then write a conclusion. Yeah. So that's a systemic thought process, a system, a systematic process. Yeah. And that I love. I heard that and I, I did something kind of similar, but not nearly as thorough. And that process, I just want to pair it. If you can think about the system that you're in and how to make the system better, um, if you can think about where are the local jobs around you that you think your students can pursue, that connection with jobs, that systems thinking, students don't no one talks to them about the system they're in. And um, if you can teach explicit systems, it's a context to make physics easier. And I just, I, I totally applaud that per, that personal guest that you, that previous guest that you had. Because um, I, I now write my tests with that thinking. Did you draw a picture? That's a point. Did you mm -hmm. list out your variables explicitly? That's a point. Or more than one point right? To a certain point, I don't even care what your final answer is. I care that you know the system of solving a physics problem, because that method makes physics way more attractive in a time when people hear physics and think it sounds hard, or it sounds scary, um, or it's only for certain types of people. And, and that's a culture that's very challenging to address. But when you talk through, this is what you do, draw a picture, list your variables, make, a, make an equation, try to use basic algebra to make a link um, and then solve at the end with your units. Like that's, it's so simple. And that, th that thoroughness of focusing on a system to help people achieve more is, is fantastic. And that's exactly what happens at the board level. And so you're working with K-12 pre-university education. Is that right? Yes. So I was in what I would say is high school. I'm with 15 to 18 year olds. I've taught physics and chemistry. Physics is my favorite, but chemistry and earth science a lot. And having that experience in the classroom, I bring that into this federal agency and I'm the only teacher in the room. So I bring that experience and those goals. So you say a federal agency. So you're part of the government. So I am, okay, so this is good to say. So this, all of this is just my views and opinions. I am not a federal employee. I'm essentially, as a fellow, I'm a research assistant. So everything I say today is just my opinions and views and doesn't necessarily reflect the goals or opinions of my office. But still, it is my views that. But it is a government agency. So are them the board members you are advising appointed by the government? Yeah, so the board wow. members, there's 20... Uh, five or 26, I always forget which one, they are, they're actually volunteers, uh, but they're appointed by the president, and they serve six-year terms, uh, and they can, or yeah, six-year terms, they can do two consecutive terms, and then some will be uh, basically confirmed by Congress. So 
Yes, absolutely public figures. So they're trying to improve physics and engineering education at what I would say school. So from four years old through to 18 years old. And yes, you're in the middle of that as a for a year or 11 months as a high, just a Joe average, forgive me, high school teacher. You're just re and you're representing all the, the science teachers and physics teachers in America. Amazing. Yeah, it is. And, and what's amazing about the National Science Foundation is historically they've only been in university undergrad and graduate level. One of the things they've realized is that we lose most of our students off of math and science before the third grade. So staying in the undergrad level or above, you're kind of missing the boat. So the National Science Foundation wants to reach down into the pre-K to 12th grade space um, to, to keep these students in the, the science and math path. So you're seeing it from the side that teachers just don't see. And you're no. seeing that how, you know, why they don't just give us all 10 million pounds for our schools. And you're, you're seeing from the other side and i guess you're seeing the short-termism of politicians because it's a long-term investment isn't it if you put 100 million dollars into one district you're going to see nothing for 12 years are you yeah that's the real political tension which i find so fascinating as someone who didn't study i studied science i didn't study really history as much as i probably should have and so if you're in congress you're your office is up for re-election in two years. You want a return on investment for every tax dollar that goes into the NSF. You want to know how much you get back, very kind of business focused. And that's just not a reality for K-12. And the same can be said of science in general. You can have moonshot projects that in 20 or 30 years might define an entire industry but I might not be in office in 20 or 30 years. So maybe I prefer the short term, smaller, maybe just pro propelling the science that already exists, which is valuable, but there's a tension there. And the same tension exists in K-12. And here's another challenge. Um, I'm at the federal level. In, in the US, K-12 STEM education, or just education in general, is funded at the state level. So if the federal agency wants to reach into K-12, there's all kinds of issues because this is a space historically that is run at the state level. There are 50 states. There are 50 different ways to do education, and they're all very different with different certifications, and even the requirements for teachers change. And so it's very dynamic, but the NSF does need to reach down into that lower level. And so they're trying to do it right now, and it's a very exciting time to be a fellow trying to help this process and, and help it be successful. Okay. So you're there for 11 months. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you feel you've already done that is going to make a material difference to the, your fellow educators? So when it comes to material benefit immediately, I haven't necessarily built anything that materially act like brings value at this moment. Being a voice in the room is a value, especially in Congress, where there are so many voices yelling for different um, different things. Having that teacher in the room who's like, we have to focus on this. We've got to keep this focus on teacher pay, on job life balance, on um, building out respect for this profession and attracting new people into the profession. It's There is value there. And it's more abstract 
but it's there. <laughs> That's well, you could have had a massive difference without realizing it there. So do you have the same problems in America that we have here with missing the recruitment targets for physics teachers by massive amounts, morale, low politicians, biffing, berating, belittling teachers. Do you have all that? Oh yeah, absolutely. We do. Yes. How disappointing. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, and this comes down to the, one of the core issues it's very hard to address is that teachers really don't get paid as they professionally should. Um, and that's easy to say, right? That's easy to say. We should, I want more money. You give me more money. The field basically requires a master's degree. Uh, when it comes to physics, if you have a bachelor's degree in physics, are you really going to go into a field that pays a starting salary of 40000 when you can essentially walk into industry and get 65000 your first year? The same conversation over here. I think in our re retention episode, we had the stat that you'd earn £6,000 a year less every year of your career if you become a yeah. teacher with a physics degree. I will say that if there's one thing the teaching career has, and I think this is an opportunity to talk about that to attract people into the field, is that you can teach anywhere in the world. <laughs> you can teach anywhere in the U.S. And that provides a lot of flexibility. And it, the teaching field does offer the opportunity for you to continue to learn basically through teaching. So my background in biology I now love physics. I went into teaching because it gave me a path to study physics. And yes, I had to do it on my own and do it through teaching. But the best way to learn is to teach. And I, in addition, I'm also a fantastic communicator. I'm very comfortable addressing a crowd. I can talk. We have our teacher voice. I do not need a microphone to get <laughs> 100 people to pay attention. And there are skills here. One of the reasons we lose so many teachers after five years with that retention issue is that it's a valuable skill that is useful in business. And so if you're someone who maybe doesn't necessarily want to go into teaching, you can do teaching for a short time to give you the experience to continue to learn, to develop these skills, these organizational skills that you then translate into business within just a few years. And there, that is attractive. And that's something that teaching has that is not related to Oh, so, I'm not sure I like the idea of encouraging people to leave after five years. No, but no, what you're saying is completely true. I mean, I, I'm joking because I left teaching after three years and was a management consultant for eight, but mm -hmm. it didn't make me happy. So I went back to teaching after yeah. eight years. It gives you a community, that's for sure. And in a time when community spaces essentially don't exist, yeah. there there is value there. There is. So are you seeing policies made or are you seeing people who are talking to the policymakers i'm seeing so i'm seeing people who are talking to the policymakers which is a fascinating process because you kind of need them to get on board with you it's not just go up and tell them what to do and then they listen right um so but the national science foundation does provide um advice basically for congress and occasionally recommendations to congress that congress then puts into bills and then votes on and even that process of what are you going to choose? How many recommendations are we going to make? If you make 10 recommendations, that can be overwhelming. You probably won't get any. But if you walk in with one good recommendation, you're very likely to get that. So how do you choose what's the one ask you make? And, and talking through this process is very dynamic. Um, 
to be successful. And it really is fascinating. So, so I think you're, you're doing yourself down saying you haven't had a material effect. You have a position of incredible influence. I mean, you, whether you know what the words you've said have made a difference, you have an incredible opportunity. And it goes back to what you're saying about being a teacher. You know, who, who could possibly do this? I mean, it's, it's what a fantastic opportunity. You're a teacher, yet you're part of a federal agency helping make or influence policy. Wow. So brilliant. What an opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's really fantastic. If there was one thing that I would say I, I contribute to, it's the idea of kind of shifting the view of education into talent development. So talent development sounds very business and sounds very government, but that's what teachers do. We produce the talent that feeds into the education or I'm sorry, into the science and engineering and really global industry. And the stronger that talent is, the more successful that industry will be, right? And so essentially, industry is getting this product for free, the people that feed into them. And framing it in that way helps getting helps to get investment and um, from, from local uh, industry. You're completely right. I mean, you wouldn't have gone to the moon without teachers. I hadn't really thought of that. You wouldn't have gone to the moon without teachers. Absolutely. No, it's funny you say that. So this tension between federal, the federal and the state level, there is precedent for American federal, the federal government to reach into the K-12 space. And that's, believe it or not, if you go all the way back to the start of the Cold War or the beginning of the Cold War with Sputnik, Sputnik was launched and Americans across the country looked up at the sky and said, oh my God, the USSR can do something we cannot. Sputnik was launched in 1957. In 1958, the uh, Congress passed the, oh, how does it go? The National Defense Education Act, which brought tons of money into the K-12 space and um, funded really strong STEM education, keeping those students in uh, K-12. And you can literally track as a result of um, NDEA, which is the act, you can literally track the students who graduated from that funding or resulted from that funding and graduated. They went into industry in the 60s and literally translated to the talent that put a man on the moon by 69 and led into the, the computer and Internet um, industry of the 80s and 90s that we are now still benefiting from. It's the more you fund into K-12 and especially funding teachers to pay them to passionately teach good science education and math and STEM education, the, the graduates of those students will stay and, and enter into these STEM industries and give back, literally in terms of taxpayers with good jobs and the rate of patents and trademarks that are produced that lead into new businesses of tomorrow. Fantastic. I think I'm, the age of the Mission Control in 69, the moonshot, was ridiculously low. The average age was mid-20s, low-20s. When you hear the, the tapes, them saying, go, go, they're all young. They're really young. They are so young. that is directly comes off what you're saying. Well, maybe we need the American government or the, some government to do an, an inspirational act like uh, the Apollo moonshot to get everyone, pour money into schools, do something amazing, let's go to Mars, um, maybe that will, will boost education. But I think the pouring money into education is where it should start. Well, it's been great fun, Michael. Thank you very much for contacting the podcast. It has. Thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed this and I love your podcast. Thank you so much.
I just thought he did himself down when he said, he said something like, oh, I don't think I made a material difference. And it's like, wow, but you must be making a difference. You must be influencing. What a fantastic opportunity. Meet all these incredible people and, and say things to them that from, from, the, from the real world that they don't understand. What a great opportunity. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I worked in, uh, when I went to the Institute of Physics and I did two years there and teaching outreach, I was very lucky uh, that I was also sort of deputy head of the education team there. And so I used to occasionally go to Department for Education meetings, meetings at the Royal Society, meetings at the Gatsby Foundation, all sorts of uh, things like this, where they would discuss issues to do with education. And the thing that always saddened me was the lack of the teacher voice in the room. You would get, if you were lucky, somebody who was quite senior in an academy trust or something like that who would be putting the case for education. But the voice of an actual classroom teacher tended to be lost. And the IOP was very good because they actually had classroom teachers on their education panel and education committee and they insisted that that advice was there. But many of the arms of government do not hear the voice from the classroom and I think that is a real missed opportunity and in America they've clearly taken that and tried to correct that which is wonderful yeah wonderful and he's as I said he's met a lot of very interesting people now you were quite taken with his approach on systems for teaching physics weren't you well I thought it was it they, they I mean you could view it maybe as overly reductionist but this idea that, that they had they focus on classroom systems that make things better to help physics understanding to help physics be more egalitarian uh, that they're focused on ways to teach. You know, we love this, don't we? Ways to teach. Mm-hmm. Ways to teach to better reach uh, people who otherwise wouldn't get to know about the world of physics. And I just thought, that's brilliant. It's, it's, it's forgetting all the political side of it, forgetting all the reasons why and whether you should and all those questions. It's basically, if you want more people from underrepresented minorities in physics, these are the ways that you can do that. Mm. Great. Yeah, I, I loved his uh, PV... PVELS method, uh, and I got him to tell me which episode that was from because I couldn't remember it. And it was from our GCSE Long Answers episode in 2021, which is not surprising I'd forgotten it, but it, it, it had a material effect on him. And him talking about it really inspired me. And I went away and I started teaching the Devels in the detail. The, the DVELS, you better explain yeah, that. The D, the, so, diagram. Draw, always sketch a diagram. I, I, I say that so much, but I don't actually make it an explicit thing. So in this system, you draw a diagram. Then you identify the variables. Then you identify the equation that has those variables in. So that's D, V, E. Then you link. So you link the variables to the equation to the unknown. You rearrange to make the unknown the subject of the equation. And that's your L. And then S, the Devels, apostrophe S at the end, sorry. But the Devels in the detail. And I thought... What a brilliant way. And I started teaching that straight away. And it's, I'd had that week one of my students say, I really struggle with calculations. And I'm thinking, not the first person I've had. But now I've actually got a material way of saying, if you follow this. Because I've always done, write down what you know, mm-hmm. write down the equation. Yep. But this is a much better, I think, much more systematic approach. So I'm really grateful to Michael for putting me onto that. Yeah, and I wonder how many other things in our classroom describing practicals, describing uh, situations, doing explanations of physical concepts, all of these things that, that could be systematised that little bit better. And I know there's a lot of work in education in cognitive psychology that links to this. So it's, it's quite interesting. Again, another great idea for a future episode, perhaps, and looking into this, looking into the latest work in this and how we can make systems in our classroom that 
are proven to help students to access the physics we're trying to teach. Yeah, I'd like to come up with a, a catchy mnemonic for answering the longer answer questions. Hmm. Something that expressed, it's not a six-pointer, look at the bullet points. Each bullet point is one point. It's a six one-pointer question, but that, that's a not quite as catchy. Yeah. E-I-S-A-X-1-P-Z. Yeah, need some work. Don't panic. It's really four two-point questions. Or don't panic. It's just three two-point questions. Look at the bullet points. I mean, ultimately, look at the bullet points would be my advice for an A-level paper anyway. Yeah, I think that's one of the things about six-mark questions. Usually, there's a way to slash them up into smaller questions. Yeah. So that's my slasher approach to them. Go in there and wield a carving knife. And I been in A-level so long, the A-level questions always have at least three bullet points telling you exactly what they're expecting. And if you don't address those, you're, you're mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the other thing I really liked, I really, really just think we could learn from, uh, is the Apollo thing. The, was the Apollo moonshot. So just to rehearse that, Sputnik went up, the Americans thought, whoa, we need to catch up plowed lots of money into education and wow a few years later the the average age of a mission control when neil armstrong stepped on the moon was 28 i looked it up i mean really so young you think what was i doing at 28 i could barely wipe my own bottom really i could barely stand on my own two legs and these guys were putting someone on the moon so basically from about 1957, so from 1957, they ploughed money into the education system. They tried to encourage high school students to go into science, and the result was a moonshot in 1969. Yeah, so 11 years later. So if you were 14 at school and Sputnik went up and suddenly there was great opportunities in physics, you'd have chosen physics, you'd have been an engineer, and then you'd have been 25 right in the mix, putting, putting people on the moon. Yeah, extraordinary. Amazing. So I think that's the thing, and it, it, it is, there are... And we've talked about this before. There are big, big questions facing the world. Uh, and a big part of the answer to those questions will come from the world of physics, physical sciences, uh, biological sciences, those sorts of areas. And it really does need that support of getting behind um, sciences in schools, promoting them, making sure that people know that that is a, a good thing to do and that there are good jobs awaiting for them uh, at the end so that people want to do science. And that was one of the things that um, struck me about Michael's talk there was he, he was talking about people who wanted to support science. Uh, there were people in Washington who wanted to support science in schools. And I don't know whether it's a peculiarity of the government that we've had over the last uh, 15 years. I don't want to get too political on it, but there is, I don't get the feeling that there is that, that, you know, that passion and that support centrally for pushing science and STEM subjects more generally in schools. It's that short-termism, isn't it? On another podcast, perhaps a little bit more successful than ours, the rest is politics. Um, they talked about this, about how the way to solve productivity is to improve education and to pour money into making people more technical, more able to work in these high-tech industries. But no government's going to do it because you're putting money in for 15 years' time, 10 years' time, and no one, no one looks that far ahead. So without being political, that is, it's just mm. a, 
a problem, isn't it? It's like investing in nuclear power cleanup. No one wants to do it. Investing in nuclear waste storage. No one wants to invest in it because it's a 30-year project. And I think you're right, but there, there clearly is a nuance here that it's not quite as easy as either you do or you don't. Because in America, where they have a similar political setup, they clearly are at some level uh, trying to invest in the future. They do want to promote science. Hence, they have a, an Einstein fellow uh, in Washington who's sitting there talking to policymakers and trying to put the word around about science education or physics education in schools. And that, that's a really positive thing. So we need to get that bit of nuance back. It's not an all or nothing thing. We just need to get that voice in there. We do. Well, I think that's a good place to end, Robin. It's been a pleasure, as usual. Yeah, don't, don't worry. You know, 2024 podcasts will not all be political in nature. Uh, <laughs> it's so hardly it's political just, today. I, I suppose we, we've, we've touched on the door, but yeah, Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell and the rest of politics, we'll leave it to them, shall we? Because, yeah. uh, you know... But, uh, it's, it's slightly more successful than us. They sold out the Albert Hall multiple times. Yeah, well, where we led, they followed, so... Yeah, I think we started before them. So, yeah, yeah exactly. we, yeah, we, influencers, influencers. Hi, Alistair. Hi, Roy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much, Robin. And happy birthday for tomorrow to the cat. Absolutely to the cat. Yeah, 55 in cat years. Uh, and I'll catch you very soon. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the Physics Teaching Podcast. And special thanks this week to Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow 2023-2024, Mr. Michael Stewart. What a star he was. The podcast is presented by Robin Griffiths and me, Thomas WP, and produced and edited by me, with Robin doing the show notes. Mm-hmm.